No, I don't start until I'm done with this pile. <laughs> um, I was talking to a couple of the guys from Greyfriars, which is uh, Moscow's, Moscow, Idaho's uh, pastoral training thing. The reading list there is very heavy. And I think it reflects Doug's, your father-in-law's strengths, which is that he's a voracious reader. And when I say that, he's on a level that's unlike almost anybody. I think it's, I want to say, five a week. That's what he told me, I think. And he said he's done it for 30-some years. Books, all right? Um, what I'm going to say to you is almost contrary to that, which is don't read a lot. Read well, carefully, and chew what you read until there's nothing left. No substance, just the kind of stuff that is soft. Um, the way I made a decision about what books I'd read when I were, was the age of a number of you was that, <laughs> you're going to laugh at this, I don't know that even David knows this, but the Christian century, every issue, and that's a liberal, horrible magazine when I was young, uh, every issue they would have famous people write what were the ten most influential books in their life. And I always read that. And what I noted was that always within the top five books of all the people that said what they read was what book? What, what do you think? Not the Bible. No? What? Nope. These are liberals, guys. Not knowing God. What? Nope. Yep. It was Augustine's Confessions. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to read it. And then I realized why they all said it. Um, so I want to give you just a few books that have really had an impact on me. And some of them you'll see that. Um, first of all, I have not yet read all of this, but it is a book that I've been familiar with my whole life. And this is Pastoral Care by Gregory the Great. It is to the early church or to, to, to the first few centuries what the Reformed pastor is to uh, since the Reformation. It's just a classic of pastoral care. And when you go to the table of index and you look at it, every single, it's almost like uh, Richard Baxter's uh, <laughs> bestiary of, of, of sins. <laughs> That's not the name. Um, in that it goes through and it says, here's how you deal with the proud man, here's how you deal with the humble man. Here's how you deal with the man of the sins of the flesh, here's how you deal with the man with the sins of the heart. And he just, and he goes through and through and through and through. Can't more highly recommend this. Here's Augustine's Confessions. Always put a few uh, yellow post-it notes in the front of the book so that you can put them in where they're important and this some you'll need more than others. When I went in the ministry, I read this book called The Autobiography of Richard Baxter. It's, it's obviously shortened, you know. And when I got done that, I read The Reformed Pastor. There's no question. The greatest influence on my conscience as a pastor are these two books. If you have not read The Reformed Pastor and you're a pastor and an elder, you should do it. You'll hear some of this today. 
I can't recommend this highly enough. This is where we are today. This is not ancient history. We have now returned to the early church. And you, you'll understand that a little bit. This is called persecution in the early church. Um, is it on the internet? Is it on the internet, Stephen? I don't think so. It, I think it's hard to find copies of this. So we should produce a PDF, although I think it's still in copyright. It probably is. Anyhow, huh? Okay, we're working on getting a PDF. Fantastic book. This particular edition is Oxford 1980. It's been issued in a few different things. And you'll, you'll know why on this one in a few minutes. I know. It's weird. Why would I recommend Kierkegaard? I don't know how to describe it to you. It's like, I don't know. This thing's beat to a pulp. They're just short little vignettes that he throws off. They're parables. Stephen, what would you say about it? It's very applicable to modern and PCA, evangelical PCA. I don't know what. What would you say, David? Nothing. All right. Now, Chesterton. I would recommend that you not read Lewis and that you read Chesterton. The reason is Chesterton is more manly. And you don't want to adopt an affected method of communication. I think Lewis leads you into an affected method of communication. I could be wrong. That's just my thinking. Chesterton is like a whirlwind. He's like, he just punches you. And you recover through confusion over what he's saying for the next few sentences. Then he punches you again. And I have read this standing in my office right after church to student after student, graduate student after graduate student, faculty member after faculty member of IU. If I were to look for one thing to give to my sister, and I've tried for years to get her to read any Chesterton, that's what I'd give her. Anybody who is smug in the conceit of the modern. Anybody who thinks that they have, uh, they're part of the ascent of man, all right, <laughs> give them Chesterton. Writing at the first part of the century, um, his stuff on domesticity, femininity, and masculinity is unbelievable. I just recently listened to his book on Germany, and anybody that says that he was inoffensive has never, ever read what he says about Germans. And I had Jürgen von Hagen listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> Registers of the Consistory. You don't need to buy this book. It's very expensive. All you need to do is come up afterwards and spend two minutes looking at it and you'll learn everything you need to know. Seriously. Because what this book does is this book gives you a record of the actual work of the elders in Geneva. And here's what you're going to find. Calvin spent a huge amount of his time adjudicating conflict between two drunks, one a man, the other a woman, who had been in a bar late one night, and he drank marriage to her, and then she had a baby, because he drank marriage, and then they had sex, and then a baby, and then he denied that he drank marriage to her. That's Calvin's work. 
That's what he did. And it bears no resemblance to any Reformed Presbyterian pastor today. Not mine. (laughs) And we do hard work in pastoral care. Calvin is good because he was given to pastoral care. And that's the only thing you get out of this. You read these horrible situations, and they're just constantly dealing with them. And then you'll be freed up to be a shepherd instead of an intellectual. Okay? And, and, and we need that. And then finally, my brother Nathan gave me this book when I entered the ministry. And it had a profound impact on me, uh, especially when I came to Bloomington and was, but we had spent a lot of time in university communities. Seeing Simeon's, the, the hatred that the rich people of his church had for him, locking the church so that he couldn't get in and preach. All right. Seeing the humiliation of the man, it just bucked me up for what I was going to face. And that's a lot of what we need. We need some example like the Apostle Paul that didn't live 2,000 years ago. Doug Wilson is giving us a good example today. Lloyd-Jones in his time, he suffered humiliation when he took over from uh, G. Campbell Morgan. Um, Edwards, uh, the end of his ministry in Northampton, phew, you talk about humiliation. It's good for us to see humiliation. Now, one other thing. One of the things he says in here is that for the first eight years, he wrote out his sermons, his manuscripts. Wait, you don't know. This is, this is just a biography of Charles Simeon of Cambridge by Hugh Evan Hopkins. So the registers of the consistory of Geneva in the time of Calvin Kingdon. Uh, David Wegner's professor also. I had him when I was at UW-Madison. Robert M. Kingdon. Uh, Chesterton's The Thing, Attack Upon Christendom by Soren Kierkegaard. Persecution of the Early Reformed Pastor, the Autobiography, Confessions, and uh, Pastoral Care by Gregory the Great. Um, so anyhow, he said that he wrote out all his sermons in manuscript form for the first eight years. And so I just had it in my mind, I think I'll spend eight years writing out manuscripts. Okay? And then he said he, he began to be able to get away from them. Um, now I would recommend that you don't do it that long, although I would recommend that you always have a manuscript. But I think that uh, on this particular issue, I think that Solomon Stoddard was right. I don't think reform preaching is going to be what it needs to be until we cut ourselves loose from our manuscripts. It's like a nursemaid to me. It's my security blanket. It makes sure I don't make an ass of myself. And what we really need in the pulpit today is men who will trash their reputations. Um, and if you're, in, if, if, you're, if you're tied to your manuscript, it's... I really think that it, is, that it is to lose a lot of what it is to preach. And, and not everybody's like you, not everybody's like me, but one of the things I notice is it doesn't cause me to go off on tangents. And yet you read anything Paul wrote, and his tangents are mind-boggling. You know, we call them parenthetical asides. But what Paul's doing is he's thinking of this person who is looking daggers at him right now. They're very personal. And so I think eye contact of preachers is very important because you know the stories of the people there. You're their shepherd. 
And so you go on asides because all of a sudden you think, oh, I know what she's thinking right now. She thinks she can never come to the Lord's table. Okay, I'm going to give an exhortation to her right now. Hey, those of you who are timid and think you can never be good enough, do you realize that that is precisely the qualification? You know, we should not be tied to manuscripts. It's good discipline to do them. I think you should do them for every sermon. But very few men did. All right, now. 22. All right. Let's pray. Our Father, would you please build affection between us as shepherds, elders, deacons, pastors, men aspiring to the office? Would you please help us to love one another? Please give us love for men who are bearing the marks of Jesus. We thank you for Doug and the incredible encouragement he has been to David and to me, and for the presence of his, excuse me, his son-in-law, Ben, and of Tyler and what's, okay, those men. We thank you that they're with us, and we pray that you will protect their ministry. We thank you for David and the way that he and the elders and the pastors of Christ the Word have strengthened us. Now, Father, we come to your Word. We pray that the Word's of my mouth and the meditations of every one of our hearts will be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Immediately prior to our text this afternoon, oh, I wanted to say one other thing. When I went into the ministry, I began to copy by hand and then by typewriter any quote that I thought was very helpful. So I have these piles of them in my cabinets. They're obsolete now. I never use them because now the ones that are really important I've entered into the computer, right? But keep, keep quotes and then go through them because every single time that you want a quote, you have to go through the whole stack in order to find them. And you'll always be waylaid by other things you've forgotten. And that is an excellent filing system. Seriously. That's, that's why your desk is dirty, because that's your filing system. It keeps people at things at the front of your mind that you don't realize that's how you're doing. This is my file on false shepherds. And this is the final thing I wanted to say to you before I preach. When you read the Bible, mark every place as you go through it that says to you the difference between a false shepherd and a faithful shepherd. Whatever mark you want to use, an asterisk, I use FS. Keep track of every writer and everything in Scripture that has to do with you being a pig farmer. And you say, well, I'm not. I'm a pastor. I'm an elder. And I say, that's what I mean. Okay, you're a pastor. Keep track of every place that tells you what the marks of a faithful or unfaithful pig farmer are. You say, well, I'm a pastor. I say, okay, that's what I mean, a pastor. In other words, don't think carefully, you know, just be forgetful about your office (laughs) and look at what scripture says about your office and how you can tell who's faithful and who's unfaithful and what seduces men to unfaithfulness in the ministry okay this is one of my files I want to read to you a couple things from it at the very beginning peace is certainly a pleasing word but cursed is the peace that is obtained at so great a cost that there is lost to us the doctrine of Christ by which alone we grow together into a godly and holy unity. 
Peace is certainly a pleasing word. That's the part I remember. But cursed is the peace. You don't have to remember everything. How about this? While the priests are out to net their prophets and the people are truly delighted to be confirmed in their errors, Satan has such freedom to deceive. And then a third. Indeed, it is appropriate to repeat here once again what I've mentioned before, that fault must not always be found with the servants of Christ if they're driven with violent force against professed enemies of sound doctrine. Don't always be faulting pastors for the intensity of their opposition to false doctrines. All right? Unless, of course, you're perhaps disposed to accuse the Holy Spirit of lack of moderation. Then go ahead. Feel free. Be my guest. And then listen to this. The vehemence of holy zeal and of the Holy Spirit in the prophets was like that. And if soft, effeminate men think it stormy, they do not consider how dear and precious God's truth is to him. Isn't that beautiful? Never forget reading that. And I, I decided as I read that, I'm going to keep track of the, uh, of the word effeminate from now on the rest of my life. It's dead. Nobody says effeminate anymore. You know. And all three of those are <laughs> Calvin. Okay. Immediately prior to our text this afternoon, Jesus has been teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's a long section. And at its heart are these precious words. John 6, beginning with verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh, in case, in case we didn't get it the first time. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, think about Jesus repeating this. I don't think I was shocking enough. They may have not caught what I was saying. Anyhow, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, this is the context for the disciples' response, and it's from their response that we have the title of our message this afternoon. It's titled, Who Can Listen to It? From what we've just read, the exchange with Jesus continues, but it moves from the primary participants being, quote, the Jews, to Jesus' disciples. And here is, again, the word of the Lord, which is eternally true, picking up with verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I, my not, did I myself not tell you, not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Now you'll notice that Jesus' disciples found what he had said concerning the necessity of their eating his body and drinking his blood repugnant. They called it a hard saying. It was very difficult for them, and so it says they grumbled at it. They claim no one could bear listening to it. And in the context of teaching in the synagogue, we all recognize what that means, don't we? The same thing it would mean today in our pulpits. If men are grumbling at the preacher and saying his words are too difficult and no one can listen to them, the rich and influential of the congregation won't waste time taking the steps necessary for the good of the flock, of course, to rid themselves of the man. They'll get together and scheme, then they'll offer the preacher suitable remuneration. That was from a letter that I got from a rich man. We're sure that we can find suitable remuneration. And we're also convinced that your family will be happier in another place. Okay? If the preacher refuses that suitable remuneration, they will savage him. Because after all, he doesn't talk their language, the universal tongue called money. And seeing he's completely unreasonable then, they'll resort to more aggressive tactics. It was a bit different with our master in the ancient world though, because back then the elite worked on a plot to murder the man. And this was how the Jews responded to Jesus. But look back at this scene and we can insert ourselves into the disciples' thoughts. I want you to just think, okay, you know, what would I have been thinking if I was a disciple? (laughs) You know, what would I have been thinking? So here's maybe what they were thinking. Why is Jesus always shooting himself in the foot? Remember very sweetly the night that David and I were telling Doug what he shouldn't, shouldn't do at the dinner table. And we said, Doug, you should never have opened your mouth about slavery. And he said, I had a crisis of faith. And I believed I needed to shoot myself in the foot so that anything that came to me in terms of leadership would, have, would be despite me and not because of me. And so that was my fleece. Now, that's not what he said, but David, that's a fairly accurate summary. And then you go, yes. Now I'm with you. And so you can see the disciples looking at Doug Wilson writing about slavery. Now, obviously, I'm not going to equate unless you eat my body and drink my blood with writing about slavery. 
but you can see some resemblance that Jesus is popular. He has such a ministry. (laughs) Are you with me? And the disciples would have thought, why does he always have to shoot himself in the foot? Doesn't he know how important his ministry is? How important his ministry is for God's plan, for the restoration and comfort of all those sheep without a shepherd, the very sheep he regularly claims to have compassion for. So then why does he make a habit of saying difficult and scandalous and, and yes, we must admit, hurtful things? Why does he insist on erecting impossible barriers between himself and his disciples, between his followers and God, really? Jesus' doctrine of salvation through eating his body and drinking his blood is so repugnant to those who don't believe, and often, we must admit to those of us who do believe, that scholars point to this text as maybe the most obviously authentic of all the texts of the four Gospels. Entering through what they call the criteria of dissimilarity, the door is wide open for men like the Jesus Seminar folks to declare this small section of the Gospels genuinely accurate, believably historical, and really true. The criteria of dissimilarity is a way of measuring the likelihood that something in an historic text did or did not actually happen, was or was not actually said. If what we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John would have been distasteful or shocking to the writers of the Gospel or to the members of the early church, among whom the Gospel writers did their work, then by the criteria of dissimilarity, say the scholars, it's real history. In other words, Jesus really did say that we must eat his body and drink his blood. The criteria of dissimilarity is sometimes called the criteria of embarrassment. Jesus' words here, his preaching of the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, is so dissimilar to what anyone at the time would have wanted him to say. It must be real. It was so very embarrassing, no one would ever make it up. Yesterday, as I was working on this, I received an email from a seminary David and my father took a course or two at New York's Union Seminary. I don't have any idea why I received this email. I'm not, I have no idea. But here's, here's what it said. A new New Testament, book launch and panel discussion, Tuesday, March 5th, 2013 at Union Theological Seminary, New York City 7815 event co-sponsored by Union Theological Seminary and the Interfaith Center of New York. Join us on Tuesday for a book launch and panel discussion of a new New Testament subtitle, A Reinvented Bible for the 21st Century Combining Traditional and Newly Discovered Texts, with a foreword by John Dominic Crossan. And then they say three members, and I got such a kick out of this, three members of the Council of Elders. Excuse me. Actually, what it says, that was actually a mistake on my part. It says the Council of Scholars will lead the discussion. And then under that, this and the end of the email... Uh, here's a summary of what this New New Testament, it's actually the name of it, the New New Testament. Over the past century, numerous lost scriptures have been discovered, authenticated, 
translated, debated, celebrated. Many of these documents were as important to shaping early Christian communities and beliefs as what we have come to call the New Testament. These were not the work of shunned sects or rebel apostles, not alternative histories or doctrines, but part of the vibrant, (laughs) you can tell you're in New York City, part of the vibrant conversations that spark the rise of Christianity, yet these scriptures are rarely read in contemporary churches. They are discussed nearly only, and sick, yeah, nearly only by scholars or within a context only of Gnostic Gospels. Why should these books be set aside? Why should they continue to be lost to most of us? And don't we have a great deal to gain by placing them back into contact with the 27 books of the traditional New Testament? By hearing finally the full range of voices that formed the early chorus of Christians. And then directly under that, and then the email's done, is a sort of bold statement, copies of the book will be available for sale at this event. Always watch, whenever you read Calvin and Luther, always watch the money. That's what Joel Belt says is the journalist's rule. Watch the money. And if you think what we're doing is church, watch the money. Watch the money. Now, here is a council of scholars They're talking about the New Testament scriptures. They they don't mention the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through the church of Jesus Christ, giving us the canon. These men demonstrate no faith or even awareness that this was the method God used to exclude these writings from the canon of sacred scripture. And so now we have a new New Testament that brilliant, brilliant men want us to give them money for. And they want their New Testament to be added to the word of God in the worship of the Christian church, and this is the world we live in. Well, we do agree on one thing, and that is that Jesus really did say we must eat his body and drink his blood. Now, you might wonder why I put that um, little illustration in there. And I argued about whether or not to put it in. The reason I put it in is, you know how everybody knows that it's not true that the things we're dealing with today are unheard of in history, that either the errors of doctrine or practice. There is nothing new in sin, right? You go back to the Old Testament, you see the incest, you see uh, feminism in 1 Corinthians, obviously, right? Um, but I want you to understand that because of the unfaithfulness of pastors, in my lifetime, I have seen a horrible, horrible decline in, the, in, 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 in holiness, in purity, in faithfulness in the marriage bed, in number of children. I could go on and on and on. And so I want you to realize that this is going to be in your church. You will actually have people who will ask you, why don't we accept these others? You can't depend on as basic things as the canon anymore. I'll never forget reading the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And I read of a bunch of women in my denomination getting together and having the Lord's Supper, but they referred to it as the fluids of women. Are you with me? And they were explicit about their bodies and fluids. And this was, I'd say, 23 years ago. 
And I'm reading this, and it was done in the name of Jesus Christ. And so honey displaced wine, and honey was used for a certain reason, and, and it, was, it, was, it was something that you could never make up. And living in a sort of ghetto of the Reformed community, we don't realize where we're headed. But I've been there. I'm coming back to tell you. That's why I'm so intent on the issue of gender-neutered Bible translations. Okay? I know where we're headed. And this argument that all these things should be added to the New Testament is not something you can just say, well, it's flakes at Union Seminary. I guarantee you, you're going to have to get a defense of the canon to your people. And yet, I guarantee you also, it never happened except maybe in Roman Catholics' apologetics in any church of my parents or my grandparents. So here's where we're headed, and, and, and what we have to do is we have to begin to recover the zeal and the discernment and the uh, <laughs> impropriety of the great warriors of the past. We can't live. I remember Dad saying so often that J. Gresham Machen said that America is living on the borrowed capital from generations past and watch out when it runs out. And then he died. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and here David and I are. And the capital done run out. Right? So men, wake up, sleepers. We do agree that Jesus actually said this, but our reasons for believing are a world and an eternity apart from their reasons for believing it. And yet, contrary to what these wisdom of this world scholars think, we're not embarrassed by these words of Jesus, and we're not embarrassed in the least. To us, they are the only words of life. Why then did Jesus' disciples reject these words? Of course it's true that we have the advantage of looking back through the Last Supper in the upper room, back through the cross and the resurrection as we hear these words. The disciples were still looking forward and they were bearing the shame of their association with Jesus, a man despised and rejected of men. Disciples felt some turmoil watching Jesus shoot himself in the foot this way. They'd freely admit to being sorely disappointed. And so in John 6 we read, verse 60, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And so here the disciples were grumbling against Jesus and his teaching. And Jesus responded by giving them a hint of what was to come, of his ascension. But note that Jesus calls their grumbling, stumbling. They thought they had an issue with Jesus, but their issue was really with God's Spirit. They thought the failure to communicate was the fault of Jesus when actually it was their own fault. They were not hearing and not believing what Jesus said. They were the sinners. It wasn't Jesus who was the sinner. They were the ones who had failed. It wasn't Jesus who'd failed. And so for this reason, when Jesus heard them grumbling, he told them they were stumbling. They were failing. They were at fault. Then Jesus did something that every shepherd and every pastor is made for, is called to, is ordained to. And here's what he did. 
he diagnosed the sickness threatening his flock and he set about to protect and heal them. And so he said to them, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Note Jesus' emphasis here on words. They are the currency of our work. All right, don't miss the words. And then he says, what the sheep need is not access to good health care. They need access to good soul care, to words that are spirit in our life. They don't need men holding a sinecure. And so seeking to cure the souls God had given him, again, Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The Holy Spirit gives life. The words Jesus spoke to them were spirit and were life. Now, why does Jesus say this? Well, right after the rich young ruler left Jesus for his money and possessions, Jesus said one of the hardest warnings any pastor or parishioner of these United States could ever hear. Matthew 19, 23 following, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's the backdrop. Now listen to the exchange. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Again here, note the disciples' reaction in Jesus' response. They were astonished and exclaimed, who then can be saved? To which Jesus responded, with God, all things are possible. And so any effectiveness in preaching and teaching God's word requires the work of the Holy Spirit. In our work, shepherding God's flock, we must depend upon the work of the Holy Spirit. We must cling to the power of the Holy Spirit. Yesterday, our eldest daughter, Heather, was catechizing one of her sons, seven-year-old Josiah. The catechism question Heather used was based on Westminster Shorter 29 to 31. She asked Josiah, who can change the sinner's heart? The correct answer Josiah was supposed to give was the Holy Spirit alone. But he said, Jesus, probably, And this is an accurate reflection of the state of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in our churches today. And I'm his pastor. One of of them. That's probably David's fault. (laughs) Jesus and God are the answer to everything, and the Holy Spirit is relegated to oblivion. Or, if we're to be truthful, our own ability to empathize with others, our brilliant intellect, our marketing, our way of putting it Just so. Our wonderful wife and helpful children, our killer programs, our killer schools, our musicians and their music, our head coverings. All right, joke. One of these is not like the others. (laughs) These are the things that really win souls. Do you understand what I'm saying? My empathy. My ability to be sensitive. 
And this is the problem with our preaching today. We do not want to depend upon the Holy Spirit for the success of the work. That's it. I have said a number of times in this church and my former church that the preacher, there are two ways of saying it. One is, will make you think that I am educated. The preacher is the one you pay to be pious to prove it doesn't pay to be pious. A better way of saying it is, it is the job of the preacher to protect his flock from the Holy Spirit. That's the job of the preacher. And listen, when I say things like this, I don't say them with, I don't say them because I don't know myself. I know I don't know myself as I ought. Um, this is the problem with our preaching today. Instead of being servants of the Word and the Spirit, we're servants of ourselves and our congregation, and we protect them from the Holy Spirit. That's what we do. We do not want to depend upon the Holy Spirit for the success of our work. Dependence upon God makes us feel what? Naked. Utterly naked. Vulnerable. Not able to predict the people's response. And so instead of faithfully serving as an instrument of the Spirit and his word, we serve as an instrument of the rich men. And we do our despicable deeds of protecting them and their church from the Holy Spirit. The job of a chaplain is to show up all decked out in his dress whites and not make any commotion. He's to preside over a good show that doesn't upset the elders' wives. Because upsetting the elders' wives upsets the elders, and when the elders are upset, session elder meetings are a pain. And so the pastor, everything that's done, is perfectly pitched to the elders' wives. And I think that's the grid to understand all reform music today. I think all reform music is simply the lowest common denominator of not offending elders' wives. Okay? And so the pastor tones down his doctrine and practice and, of course, the music, so there's no threat to the little children and their mothers remain happy. But here Jesus went speaking of cannibalism. And really it was incomprehensible. What was he thinking? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to him, does this cause you to stumble? Now pay attention to these words spoken by our Lord. He was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And so there we have it again. Preaching is not effective apart from the power of God. Who can change the sinner's heart? The Holy Spirit alone. Maybe I should put it this way, preaching that conforms to the wisdom and presentation and orderliness and affect and posture that our generation is pleased by, preaching that calms, reassuring us that this is no cult, and that the most respectable among us will find nothing to beef with here, is not true preaching. Why not? Because it serves the interests of sinners instead of the Savior. And worse, it depends upon the preacher rather than upon the Spirit of God. 
As I said a minute ago, instead of faithfully serving as instruments of the Holy Spirit in his word, we pastors today work hard to squelch the Holy Spirit, to silence him, to keep him from messing up our good thing, which is to say the elder's good thing, which is to say the elder's wife's good thing. This is the taming and this is the humiliation of God's spirit and God's word. Remember what Stephen said? You should prepare in such a way, bottom line, bottom line, bottom line. You should prepare in such a way that if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, you have a good lecture. And sadly, this is about right for our preaching today. We have no faith in the Holy Spirit's power or presence, and so we do our best to give a helpful thought for the week, an emotive and warm-hearted and sensitive few points about this and that, or if we're reformed, a good lecture. Central to a good lecture, of course, is that everyone recognize the lecturer. <laughs> you know? And you is the one who has the erudition to put that brilliant piece of work together. We carefully prepare sermons where certain will scandalize no one and stick closely to the points, never deviating one iota. If our sermon scandalized someone, they might not like us. They might complain to their husband, and he might stop liking us. The husband and wife might even get their act together this one time <laughs> and act jointly, complaining to the governing board. From that time on, the two of them were friends. And then, <laughs> and then we've really gone and done it, haven't we? Often I've summarized my training at seminary by saying that the real curriculum of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, when David and Nathan and I attended, was to warn us, if there ever is a conflict in your church, you have failed. And so let me ask you, here in the exchange Jesus had with his listeners and disciples, did he fail? Verse 65, and he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can tell to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Have you ever noticed that Jesus almost seems to celebrate the blindness and granite hardness, or maybe we should say the toxicity of man's heart absent the work and power of the Holy Spirit. Mark 4, 11 and 12, he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables so that, purpose statement, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise what? They might return, they might repent and be forgiven. Who gave the disciples and who has given you and me the mystery of the kingdom of God? Let me ask you that. Brother believer, where did you come from? Erudition? A good lecture? An emotive fellow who took the time to wheedle and cajole you? Precisely where did you come from? Of course, the answer is that the wind blew where he desired and gave you hearing ears and seeing eyes and a tender heart and the horrible, terrible conviction of sin and the repentance and faith and the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is the healing of sinners and hope of this dark world. That's where you came from. And so if that's where we came from, how can we have no faith for that for any of the people in our churches?
God. God is where we came from. Without God, nothing is possible. As dead men walking, we await his work. As pastors talking, we know there is no hope without him. And yes, we know his work is not controllable, but we also know he has promised his word will never return to him void. And so we preach on, praying for his anointing of us and opening the eyes and hearts of our congregation. The more I've been a pastor, the more I love John 3. I just love it. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand. Man, it has to be born. How can a man be born? The wind blows where it lifts. You know? It's so, it's so absolutely contradictory to anything that we think about salvation. You know, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the mystery of the Holy Spirit's work. When it happens, how it happens, where it happens. But boy, we know that the preaching of the word is the means that God has appointed. Now, I want to talk a few minutes, and it's somewhat haphazard, um, but I want to talk a few minutes about two areas that I believe that we need to begin to show the dependence on the Holy Spirit today. Um, I think these are two of the main areas where we refuse to be dependent on the Holy Spirit today, okay? Both of them are authority. I think we as pastors today hate authority, and we're all servant leaders, and it's a big scam, you know, it's a big scam, servant leadership. It's absolutely true, but the way we use it today is to abdicate the responsibility God has given us and to act as if it's piety to abdicate, okay? So I want to talk about authority, and the two headings are going to be authority in content and then authority in presentation or in affect. In Mark 1, 21 and 22, we read, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed, I think David read this, probably all of us read it. (laughs) They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. And yet the pastor-slave of Jesus Christ today is hard-pressed on all sides to give up his belief that he can know truth at all, let alone proclaim it. Are you with me? Did you make that transition? Everything today is opposed to the concept of truth. All right? The radical relativism that permeates our world is absolutely antithetical to everything written in Scripture, and those seeking to preach Scripture faithfully will immediately face opposition. The intensity of that opposition will be directly related to the faithfulness of the preacher. (laughs) In preaching God's Word with content in a form of delivery that is contextualized precisely so it is heard as radically authoritative to those acclimated to relativism. In other words, I'm going to argue that what we need to do is sharpen the sword of the Spirit. Now, it's it's blasphemy to think we can do it, but we actually can. And sharpen it precisely at the point of authority and content, authority and delivery. Okay, that's my argument. 
Faithful preachers today will almost always be accused of arrogance because the method and content of their preaching will bear witness to their faith that they are not communicating the words of men, but of God. My wife and I were out for dinner one evening, and as we were preparing to leave, we struck up a conversation with another couple at a table nearby. They appeared to be in their late 70s, and both were strikingly tall and dignified. At the beginning of our small talk, we found out they'd been married 15 years. We found out that they both had children from prior marriages, and they shared them all as grandchildren. They were from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, He'd spent 50 years as a computer programmer. But our deeper conversation started with a woman exclaiming over the beauty of the ocean. She had learned that I was a pastor and trying to relate to us on a spiritual level. She told us that the sea gave her permission to commune with God as she rather than he. When I asked why the sea struck her as feminine, her husband suggested it might be due to the sea's gentleness and peace, the softness of the waves lapping the sand. Well, having loving the city of Gloucester, Massachusetts, I said, but what about the perfect storm? And that was a recent movie at the time about the death of Gloucester fishermen whose boat sank after being swamped by waves that were the size of tall office buildings. And so the woman tried again. Well, maybe it's because the sea is so nurturing and generous, like a mother. Well, if Athens had her idols on every street corner, we have ours. And sex may well be the Zeus in our pantheon of gods. And so every conversation about sex we have with unbelievers can easily be led to the gospel. By this time, we'd been invited to join them at their table. So obviously I had not been throwing my dinner roll too badly. (laughs) That's a Doug Wilson expression that we all love here, you know. And so sitting with them at the table, the man asked us, what do you think of homosexual marriage? Well, I responded, God made man and woman for each other, not man for man or woman for man, woman for woman. This isn't how I said it. I'm I'm being compressing it, right? And then I said, cut off male sexuality from the discipline of woman and you have a terrible thing. All men here, would you all agree with me? It's a good thing sex begins in the kitchen. Even medical science knows this. Men engaging in sex with other men are unbelievably promiscuous, and so their sex is deadly. Science tells us this. The man responded, there is no truth in science. In fact, there's no truth at all anywhere. It wasn't the statement itself that amazed me, but that it came out of the mouth of a 70-some-year-old man who had grown up in the U.S. and received his college degree about the time I was born. I said to him, you spent 50 years writing code. If you make a mistake in your programming, you have to go back and correct it because computers don't lie. How can you possibly say there's no such thing as truth? It's true, he said. There's no truth in computer programming, no truth at all. And then I tried another tack. I said, well, what about when you drive your car? When you put your foot on the brakes, do you trust them to stop you? He said, it's just a question of what works and what doesn't. But it has nothing to do with truth. Long ago, I learned that science has nothing to do with truth. There is no truth anywhere. 
Now, I wrote this down right afterwards. This is word for word what he said. Earlier, the man had told us his wife had grown up in a Catholic home and attended 12 years of Catholic school, and she added, all my life, quote, all my life I've wanted to talk to God as a woman, not as a man. This is something very precious to me, something I've never told another soul in my life, even my husband, and I wanted to share it with you, unquote. And this is our world. We have been inoculated against the very idea of truth, and we believe that our individual stories, feelings, perceptions, intuitions are the only truth we'll ever know. For the man, life is simply a matter of what works and what doesn't, not what's true and what's false. For the woman, spiritual truth, even down to how she addresses God, is simply a matter of giving free reign to her inner feelings, intuitions, and her desires. Until recently, science was religion's main competitor for man's faith, but we're far beyond that now. Truth no longer exists. Only what works and what a man feels in his heart has any authority. A number of times during the evening, the man asked us, why does truth have to be exclusive? Can't people live together without saying those who disagree with them are wrong? This is our world, but it was the Apostle Paul's world too. Later that night, Mary Lee pointed out to me that we're now back with the Apostle Paul in Athens. Surveying the idols everywhere he looked, Paul told those most sophisticated men in the most cultured city the world has ever known. I'm sorry, but more than Oxford, sorry. Can you handle it? (laughs) And here's what he said to them. Now, please... Take off your your ears, your evangelical, your reformed, disembodied brain ears. Listen to Paul. Listen to what he says, okay? Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance... Ignorance. (laughs) Think about that. Come on, let that word come back to life. What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made, notice, is it the indefinite article or the definite article? It's not a God, it's the God, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, the God, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. You remember what the last time this was in the book of Acts? You remember what happened the last time this was said? (laughs) Huh? That deacon, that, that lesser officer, deacon, said it. Stephen, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all people life and breath and all things. (laughs) Okay, are you feeling this a little bit now? All, all, the God, all right? And he made from one man every nation of mankind. By the way, the PCA is shot through with evolution. Don't think it doesn't matter. David and I are rabid about this. Don't think it doesn't matter whether there was one man, Adam, from whom God made the race. All right. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might, and you remember the word here? (laughs) Grope. If perhaps they might grope for him. And find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, and we all love this, in him we live and move and have our being, or we exist in the NASB. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, and now here it comes, guys. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Reading the Apostle Paul's words, it's hard to imagine how exclusive, how intolerant, dogmatic, and unbelievably arrogant his words sounded to the Athenians. Yeah, right. Your own God is the only true God. He's the one who made the world and everything in it. He's determined the borders of the Roman Empire. We gave you Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, but we're groping at truth. We're ignorant. You conceited fool. And then you tell us, unless we repent, he'll judge us, and that the proof is some guy you claim was raised from the dead? You can't be serious. You may say that the Apostle Paul's preaching to the Athenians is exactly what every evangelical preacher in the U.S. today preaches, but the sad truth is that such preaching is rare, not just outside, but also in the Bible-believing church. Look at it honestly. And it's clear this sermon is filled to the brim with radical truth statements that allow no wiggle room. He does not preface each sentence with hedging or weasel expressions like I believe or I think. Rather, he makes declarative statements of universal truth. The God who made the world and all things in it is Lord of heaven and earth. And what of his condemnation of the idols of ancient Athens? The British Museum is filled with them today, and we call them art. And yet, standing in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul did not flinch. All these things and the thought that gave rise to them were only the products of, as he said, times of ignorance for which those listening must repent. Only a complete fool would say the things that Paul was saying. And then finally, to top it all off, the Apostle Paul began to speak of the resurrection of the dead. Put yourself in the minds of the Athenians there that day, and it's little wonder, Scripture tells us, quote, some began to sneer. Unquote. I told you we'd get to workmen and the persecution in the early church. Moving into the first few centuries following the apostolic age, we find radical relativism at the heart of the persecution of the early church. Get your mind around the similarity to us today. The Roman Empire encompassed the ancient world. Many countries, races, and ethnic groups were under Rome's rule, and keeping the peace was no easy task. One of the most challenging jobs the emperors faced was avoiding offending the various gods worshipped by each people group. Rome solved this problem by being inclusive of religious diversity. Instead of forcing her subjects to worship her own gods, Rome endorsed every nation's gods. 
The pantheon of gods was the law of the empire, and everyone got along fine with one another as long as no one attacked their neighbor's god. Moral and religious relativism were the law of the land. And so why were Christians persecuted and martyred? Because Christians were radically opposed to all idolatry. That's why. Christians were exclusivists. As we just saw with the Apostle Paul in Athens, Christians bore witness that all the gods of the nations are idols and that the Lord made the heavens and the earth. He was the one in whom every man lived and moved and had his being, and one day all men would be judged by him. Can you feel the tension? Well, you bet you can, and the reason is because it's all around you today. Like the Christians of the Roman Empire, we too live in a radically relativistic world as we bear witness that Jesus Christ alone is Lord of all the earth. As the months and years passed after Christ's ascension, the gospel message grew in its divisiveness. First, believers were persecuted in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Rome's tolerance could not include the rock-hard exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the way the truth and the life and that no man comes to the Father except by him. This is the reason Christians were imprisoned and condemned to death. Now, here's the part to get, okay? What charges were brought against them? What charges were brought against them? They were enemies of all mankind. They were They were atheists and they were what? Anarchists. The two main charges were atheism and anarchy. (laughs) How could it be? The New Testament epistles are filled with commands to respect and submit to authority, but Rome saw it differently. By her logic, Christians upset the delicate balance she had enforced across the empire in an endorsement of the pantheon of gods. If believers called all men to faith in Jesus Christ, they were opposed to her gods and thus to her rule of law. Now, guys, do you understand this is America today? There's no need to translate it. And so they were persecuted, they were arrested, and they were often martyred for their radically authoritative witness to the way, the truth, and the life. This might help us to understand why the Roman ruler Pilate responded to our Lord's statement that he'd come into the world, quote, to testify to the truth. One more cynical ruler in a cosmopolitan, diverse, and inclusive world, he exclaimed what? What is truth? What is truth? Now, I'm skipping a bunch of pages, which you'll be, Jared will be very happy about. Um, Spurgeon was once asked, why do you always preach against fornication? And he said, look, if you stop doing it, I'll stop talking about it. Everybody knows that I'm a harp of 10,000 strings that harps on one string. And so everybody thinks that the only part of doctrine or the only part of scripture that I know is any of the texts that have to do with manhood and womanhood or sexuality. But it's not true. The reason I harp on that is, first of all, it's, it's, it's kind of foundational to our lives. I don't know if you're in touch with your inner man. (laughs) 
but I've kind of noticed that most of us, our brains never depart far from it. It's always a battle. And so I think if God made us in the womb, male and female, that probably we should seek to confess it as often as we can, and that that's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 11. That instead of it being an embarrassing thing that we hide and bring in after they've prayed the sinner's prayer, that we should bring it in to Chelsea, Clinton, and know it's the most evangelistic doctrine that she'll ever hear in her life, the fatherhood of God. So that's one of my excuses. But I want to say another thing. Two things have consumed me in the ministry. One is abortion and the other is sexuality. They're interrelated. I believe today, we all believe today, that the issues that are the heresies today surround anthropology. Okay, not soteriology. It doesn't mean that we don't care about soteriology. You go look at my James Buchanan justification. You come sit in our classes on justification. You listen to my conversations with my friends who have converted to Roman Catholicism. I just tell them they're heretics. Marcus Grodi, if any of you ever watch EWTN, you know, he's on there all the time. And I in seminary, we used to sit in the grass and talking. Scott and Kimberly Hahn, dear friends of mine in seminary, absolutely opposed to the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification. But listen, people, if you read Calvin and Luther, they never stop hitting on the heresy of their day. Are you with me? Everybody knows this. And what were the heresies of their day? Well, there were a bunch of them. Rome had managed to corrupt almost everything. So he had to go back to Bernard, he had to go back to Augustine, he had to go back to Jerome, he, you know, he had to go back, right? Today, it's not that there isn't an attack on the doctrine of justification. I would say probably the most significant attack on the doctrine of justification today is the antinomian emphasis on grace. But of course, that's never what they want us to, to deal with, is the, the, uh, the grace thing. The issues today have to do with whether or not we should starve our elderly parents to death by withholding food and water. Okay? Whether or not it's okay to use Depo-Provera as a birth control device when it's in a board of fashion, whether ECPs can be prescribed by Adam when he's called into the emergency room, because it only rarely aborts. You understand, the issues today are issues surrounding anthropology. And so, if you're going to preach the word of God, you have to understand the doctrine of man. You have to. You have to study the meaning of the order of creation. You have to understand what Scripture says about the image of God in man. You just can't avoid this. And so don't just get up there and say, like a guy I heard from this community preaching on the way here one Sunday morning, he was preaching a sermon on how there is such a thing as absolute truth. And he just kept saying over and over again in his sermon, I believe in absolute truth. <laughs> he was like, dude, <laughs> you know, can you please stop saying I believe over and over again? Did you notice the Apostle Paul didn't say anything about what he believed? <laughs> it's not the most effective way of convincing people there's absolute truth to say I believe. And if you don't understand that, read Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind, and he'll make it clear, a homosexual philosophy professor from UC Chicago. And then he died. And he'll tell you, don't ever talk about your values because you've already lost the war. 
We must declare God's truth, and we must do it in such a way that it's perfectly calculated to assault every conceit of the modern, that there is no truth, that, there, that dogma is always wrong, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and the best place to do this is sexuality, it's abortion, it's the value of life, it's the image of God in man. You must study it. Now, that's my summary of five pages, all right? Remember I said preaching that's authoritative in content and preaching that's authoritative in delivery. We read in Matthew 22, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him and what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. You see, in my Bible, right there, it would have an FS. You see, he defers to no one. That's interesting. For you are not partial to any, not to your rich man, right? And if you say you don't have a problem with that, I'd say you're a liar. I have a terrible problem with that. All right. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Now remember I said preaching that's authoritative in content and preaching that's authoritative in delivery. Why, perceiving their malice, said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? A few years ago, I was speaking with a friend who taught theology at a respected evangelical seminary. He's probably one of the most respected men that you all respect, all right? <laughs> well, some of you. Many of you. Eh. Okay. <laughs> we were discussing the response of some Christian leaders to being confronted over their abuse of Scripture. I expressed my conviction that in a few years, the leader's commitment to turn from their sin would be proven to be only pragmatic, and that in time they would proceed to do the very thing that he had just promised not to do. My friend was astounded that I could think these men capable of deception. He went on to tell me why he thought I was susceptible to such uncharitable thoughts. He said to me this, quote, Your problem, Tim, is that you spent too many years in the mainline denomination with other pastors who weren't even Christians. But now you're back in the evangelical world, and these men we're working with are believers. You should never accuse another believer of lying, unquote. Really, never? The scribes and Pharisees were the leaders of the true church in Jesus' time, but Jesus called them hypocrites, and he did it publicly, over and over again. A hypocrite is a dishonest man who says one thing but does another. But that's Jesus, my friend might respond. You're not Jesus. He knew the scribes and Pharisees' hearts. We never know another man's heart. Only God knows what's inside a man. And true, in Paradise Lost, what does Milton say? He says, for neither man nor angel can discern hypocrisy. The only evil that walks invisible except to God alone. This is the reason God will preside over the final judgment. But are preachers of God's word really forbidden to diagnose and to rebuke sin in their listeners' hearts? Is this the sort of preaching we see in the New Testament? Since my friend said these things, I've thought about him a lot and have come to believe he was expressing one of the more insidious aspects of the betrayal of the method the apostles used in their teaching and preaching ministry so prevalent in Bible-believing churches today. We claim Christian love forbids our thinking anything but the best about another believer, but this is simply quitting the field in the face of the aggressive relativism of our time. The New Testament records endless rebukes, warnings, and exhortations given by the apostles to the souls under their care, with some of them so explicit that 2,000 years later, we still know the names of those rebuked. 
<laughs> I plead with <laughs> to agree with one another in the Lord. What a sweet thing to have interjected into the middle of Philippians. You know, I plead with Mary Lee and Heather. <laughs> you know? Take, for instance, the Apostle Paul's rebuke of the Apostle Peter. In Galatians 2, we read, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, unquote. What was the apostle Peter's sin? He switched places at the dinner table with the potluck. That's it. I mean, think about that. But really, switching places at the dinner table was no sin at all, unless, of course, one knew his reasons for doing so, and those reasons were sinful. If my friend were reading this, he'd get very uncomfortable at this point. Why? Well, because the only thing objectively verifiable in this confrontation of the Galatian church was that Peter had eaten with the Gentiles before the Judaizers arrived, whereas after they arrived, he withdrew, holding himself aloof. Only God could infallibly know what motivated Peter to make this change, so was it any man's business to judge his heart? Such judgments were unlikely to be accurate, right? And certainly they weren't charitable. Was the Apostle Paul then unloving when he judged Peter to have made the change out of fear of persecution of the Judaizers' hands? Was he uncharitable? when he accused Peter of hypocrisy? Was he a sinner when he recorded in a letter intended to be read publicly in church that in this matter Peter stood condemned, quote-unquote? Ah, yes, but he, now you know we're devious, right? And so we cover our cowardice with all kinds of rabbit trails. And so what's the next one? The next one is, ah, yes, but he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's how he knew these things. But today, preachers are fallible and should never make such accusations. So, Jesus did it all the time. The apostles did it all the time, but we're never to do it. We're to hold to the doctrine of the apostles, but never to the method of the apostles. We're to preach what they preach, but never in the way they preached it. How convenient. <laughs> hmm? Are you with me? I need you to be with me. I wish you were black and you'd tell me you're with me. <laughs> Come on, guys. Look at your heart. Look at your heart. Take such willful blindness and cowardice into the pulpit and most of the sermons preached by the great fathers of the church would vanish. Poof! They're gone. The sermons and letters of the New Testament, as well as the sermons preached by fathers of the church down through history, have all had this in common. They are quite specific in naming the sins of their congregation, not of Washington, D.C., of their con Let judgment begin and let it begin in the house of God. And calling men back to the holiness without which no man will see God. And they do it without apology, as if their life and the lives of the sheep in their flock depended upon it. They preach as a dying man to dying men. Giving into our culture's relativism can take many forms. No one would get very far in a typical Bible-believing church, Reformed church today, by standing in the middle of the sermon saying, you've got your truth and I've got mine, each to his own. <laughs> Something more devious is needed. 
On the one hand, mainline liberal and emergent churches do it by direct denial of the word of God. Doctrine after doctrine is tossed on the ash heap of history as they speak of the fresh revelations they've received, the new thing the Holy Spirit is doing in our time. They're, after all, progressive. They're emergent. It's a chrysalis emerging from the slime of hidebound traditions and authoritarianism. And so we see many of these churches ordaining sodomites. Others call women as pastors. Others refer to abortions as, quote, an act of faithfulness before God, which is my former denomination, the PCUSA. On the other hand, those who shepherd God's rams, ewes, and lambs in evangelical, reformed, or Bible-believing churches have their own ways of giving into the spirit of the age, ways that are indirect and therefore more effective. We studiously avoid calling any particular time, place, or person to repentance. Remember the hullabaloo about Piper and the steeple? <laughs> you remember that? Whoa! How about Katrina? Did any of you, did any of you have the thought I had on 9-11? Some of you were alive back then, right? Did any of you think when you saw the World Trade Center and then you heard about the Pentagon, I thought it will be Vegas and L.A. now right? You've got the pride, you've got the military, and now the sex. I mean, it was such a beautiful judgment of God, such a beautiful warning. You understand what I mean here. I don't mean that the death, that any of that was beautiful. I just mean that God's severity is precious to us. I'll never forget. <laughs> I already loved him. I'll never forget the cover of Credenda. When Doug wrote on that, I was like, David and I both, you remember that? Yeah, what was it? God, God, yeah, God struck America. Black, remember that? And it was, thank God that there's a voice that belongs to him to speak today. You know, God struck America. I'm sorry if this is scandalous to you. I'm not going to keep going on it because I'm out of time. I'd, ha I'd be happy to defend that position afterwards, but I'm going to keep going. Um, we take great care to avoid calling men to repentance, and it's all done under the guise of our admitting our own human fallibility or worse. We claim the high moral ground by speaking of the necessity of exercising charity towards others, always thinking and expecting the best of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Tact and diplomacy have many places where they're absolutely necessary, but the apostolic preaching of the New Testament must be our example as pastors and elders today, not only comparing our doctrine to the apostles' doctrine, but also our methods to the apostles' methods, our tone to the Apostle Paul's tone. In other words, if our sermons are filled with humor or disarming anecdotes from our marriage or family life, extended illustrations from movies, it should be obvious to us we're not devoted to the Apostles' teaching. Try to imagine the Apostle Paul preaching like that today and you'll understand my point. If our sermons seem light, if our sermons are never open to the accusation of being, <laughs> come on, give me the word. I'll tell you, it begins with an S. Second letter is H. Third letter is R. Fourth letter, that's right, shrill. If our sermons are never open to the accusation of being shrill, <laughs> Have you ever read any of the epistles of the New Testament? It's just mind-boggling to me that men can love the book of Galatians 
and even claimed to love Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians, <laughs> which if you've read it, it's about the shrillest book I've ever read in my life. And the book of Galatians is unbelievably shrill. Now, I know you want me to qualify what I'm saying. I ain't going to do it. It's shrill. By any definition we hold to shrillness today, it's shrill. And what I mean by that is that the Apostle Paul, all the way through the book of Galatians, throws in everything, including the kitchen sink. There's no tool, no relationship, no Jewish mother guilt trip, no accusation, no law of rhetoric that remains unviolated. That book ends with unbelievably gross, disgusting ad hominem attacks. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is news to you. Let me read the end of the book. No, I'll read that at the end of the sermon. All right, listen. Read our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Read any of the sermons given in the book of Acts where the apostles point the finger at their congregation saying what? What do you think I'll say here? They point their finger at the congregation and they say what? You killed him. They say this over and over again. You killed him. Okay? Hey, dude. Take a chill pill. We not. You don't have to hammer it. You know? You killed him. Review any of the epistles intended to be read aloud to the congregations to whom they were addressed. The book of Galatians. Ask yourself, what similarity do these sermons have to the preaching that you do in your church? And you'll understand my point. Then if you don't understand, go back and read them again. But this time, as if you've never heard or read them before. Asking the Holy Spirit to give you new eyes and fresh understanding. Why do we do this? Well, because we're massaging men's egos. We're capturing weak women burdened with sins and swayed by various impulses. Like the false prophets of old were saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. It gives us yes and maybe, but we never give no. We tickle the ears of men who will no longer put up with sound doctrine, but instead appoint search committees to carefully weed out any man who would be so gauche as to thunder from the pulpit, thus says the Lord God Almighty, our worthy judge eternal. During the years, and many of you have heard this uh, a number of times, I'm sorry, but in our family growing up, Dad had favorite jokes. And I have favorite illustrations, and this is, this is my favorite on preaching. During the years he lived here in the U.S., the great prophet against communism, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, knew the sort of man America wanted, but he refused to tone himself down. Exiled in 74, Ford refused to invite him to the White House. During his exile, he wasn't popular, starting with his address to the AFL-CIO and his Harvard commencement address Three years later, 1975 and 78, Solzhenitsyn had turned his prophetic gift to exposing the moral complacency of his new country, and he'd done it fearlessly, not pulling his punches. As he prepared to move home, the New Yorker sent a correspondent up to Vermont to his farm to interview him just prior to departure. So the reporter writes, back in the study, they took a break for lunch, back in the study I asked Solzhenitsyn about his relations with the West. He knew that things had gone wrong, 
but had no intention of making any apologies. Quote, so this is Solzhenitsyn. Instead of secluding myself here and writing the big wheel, I suppose I could have spent time making myself likable to the West. The only problem is that I would have had to drop my way of life and my work. <laughs> now, how could any preacher read that without starting to blush? Let me start over again. Instead of secluding myself here and writing the big wheel, I suppose I could have spent time making myself likable to the West. The only problem is I would have had to drop my way of life and my work. And yes, it is true when I fought the dragon of communist power, I fought it at the highest pitch of expression. The people in the West were not accustomed to this tone of voice. In the West, one must have a balanced, calm, soft voice. One ought to make sure to doubt oneself to suggest that one may, of course, be completely wrong. And then the end. But I did not have the time to busy myself with this. This was not my main goal. <laughs> I could done reading that, and I'm just thinking of myself. I'm thinking about one of the things I took greatest pride in at that point in my preaching work was the fact that people constantly told me that they loved the fact that when I preached, my tone never varied from conversational tone. And I read Solzhenitsyn, and I thought, how is it that my tone is always conversational and that people find that comforting? And I made a conscious decision, like I've made a conscious decision, to repent of my inclusive language that I learned in high school when my wife, in junior high, at the, or freshman in college, taught me never to say girl. She started the Women's Center out at Westmont. Feminist, right? So you repent of what you learn as a youth. Long hair and a pure steer back in 76. Ugh. I don't mind if you have a pure steer. That's not my point. My point was I was completely androgynous. And so it was a principle of me, the very thing that was my shame. I had no fever pitch of expression. I was so proud of the fact that everybody said that I preached with the same conversational tone that I talked to them in person. And I read this quote and I think, I'm not being faithful. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a real hero of mine. And I read him and I thought, there's no man I know like this. He's only doing it about communism. And we are stewards of the mysteries of God. And eternal souls hang in the balance. Here in the Western world, if a pastor's goal is to be likable, to be given serious consideration by pulpit search committees, to not be taken to task by elders during session meetings, to have peaceful weeks in between Sunday morning performances and dress whites, He will work hard to cultivate a certain tone of voice, a balanced, calm, soft. He'll make sure to doubt him, to suggest that he may, of course, be entirely wrong. But such a man is a wolf. He's a wolf. He's a false shepherd. He is a betrayer of the Lord who bought him with his own blood. Such a man should be brought up on charges in his presbytery or his synod. 
The dossier or personal information form of such a man should be tossed into the circular file by the secretary of every search committee. He should be run out of town on a rail. He should be tarred and feathered. He stands condemned. If working to expose the bloodthirsty communist empires estimated to have murdered maybe up to 100 million souls during the 20th century was a task of such importance that Solzhenitsyn had to fight the dragon at the highest pitch of expression, what is required of men called by God to fight principalities and powers to oppose false prophets who have risen among us seeking to mislead many? What is required of men set apart by the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands in prayer to the work of rescuing the perishing and standing athwart? <laughs> now, does anybody know who I'm quoting? David, you know. Standing athwart? Come on, somebody quote it. It's William F. Buckley. Standing athwart. History yelling, stop. <laughs> okay? That's the conservative movement. That's the National Review. We are to give ourselves to the work of rescuing the perishing and standing athwart the portals of everlasting hell, yelling, repent. That's our calling. Solzhenitsyn said, I, I suppose I could have spent my time making myself likable to the West, but I didn't have time for it. This was not my main goal. If our eyes aren't crusted over with cultural cataracts clouded by the glaucoma of cloying sentimentality masquerading as Christian charity, it, it will be able to see which churches, which pastors, which sermon of ours is faithful. Then I have a great quote David turned me on to about the nature of true humility in a man. Then I have some other crud. And then... Then I have Luther. I'm, all I'm doing with all these things is I'm trying to show you the tone, the, the method of delivery of the fathers in the faith. I want you to understand their tone is unlike any tone in the Reformed world today. All right? See it. A little Kierkegaard, then a little Paul, then we're done. Here's the Kierkegaard. We all know what it is to play warfare in mock battle. That it means to imitate everything just as it is in war. The troops are drawn up, they march into the field... Seriousness is evident in every eye, but also courage and enthusiasm. The orderlies rush back and forth intrepidly. The commander's voice is heard, the signals, the battle cry, the volley of musketry, the thunder of cannon. Everything exactly as it is in war, lacking only one thing, which is the danger. And so also it is with playing Christianity. That is, imitating Christian preaching in such a way that everything, absolutely everything, is included in as deceptive a form as possible. Only one thing is lacking. The danger. Here's the end of the book of Galatians. We preach, we studied through it a couple of years ago. And here's the end. 
The Apostle Paul says this, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. It's ad hominem. Do you hear that? Okay. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. But they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. (laughs) Hear it. You know, what flesh? Their boast is your private parts. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. They'll boast in it. And then he says this. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. (laughs) Listen, burn yourself up. It's okay. Be a sinner. Be a sinner. Burn yourself up. Boast in the cross of Jesus Christ personally with specific examples. I'll never forget, it was mom and dad's like 60th wedding anniversary. And if you don't know, my father-in-law was Ken Taylor who did the Living Bible. All right, it's important for you to know. So the the whole patriarchate has rented this restaurant up in somewhere like St. Joseph, Michigan. We're up at the reunion. We get together every year, 100 of us now. They had 10 children, and now there are 54 or 55 great-grandchildren. My mother-in-law is still alive, right? And so we're in this room, and there's all these pagans there. Christians, but lots of pagans. And we're all supposed to tell mom and dad Taylor what we're thankful for. And I'm just sitting there looking at them, and I'm thinking, what am I most thankful for? Well, I'm most thankful that when two days before my wedding, my father-in-law came back to Wheaton, And we went out into the backyard, and he asked me why I had been having sex with his daughter, and she was pregnant, that he then forgave me. And I didn't think about everybody sitting there. I just, I just, I was crying, and I thanked him for forgiving me. And then all of a sudden I realized what an ass I had made of myself because for one thing, my own children didn't know and they were sitting there. You know, what was I supposed to do? I couldn't take it back. And there's the preacher of the family and all the pagans, you know. (laughs) May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but what? A new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, now listen to this, dudes, listen to this. (laughs) Okay, and those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. 
For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. I mean, okay, he wouldn't have yelled it, right? And he wouldn't have been 6'2", 265. But do you feel the dignity and authority and intensity of that? Don't, don't give me any. Because I have the marks of Jesus Christ on my body. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. <laughs> you guys, I'm completely different than the Apostle Paul. I bear no resemblance to him, and I tell you I love him. Everything, including the kitchen sink. There's no tool guilt-tripping, manipulation, fine. I don't care what you call it. Ad hominem, oh, all the laws are broken. There's nothing he doesn't do in the book of Galatians. Sarcasm. I wish they'd cut it all off. And that's how our ministry is supposed to be. Right? 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 Come on, guys. You have to go for it. You have to go for it. And if you fall on your face as you go for it and you get fired, fine. Everybody's been fired. Jonathan Edwards was fired. Chill out. You know? Okay. We're done. Let's pray. David, would you pray, please? Now, Heavenly Father, we come to you and we give you thanks for this word. Lord, we confess our failure. We confess our sins. We confess to you that we have not been the servants we ought to have been. We confess to you our fear of man. We confess to you our hiding in weakness and are being influenced by the spirit of this age. Father, we ask that you will forgive us. Would you please forgive us, Father? Lord, would you change us? Would you strengthen us? Would you build us? Would you mold us into the ministers that would be able to give a good report and through which your word can prosper and your spirit can work. And Father, would you give us the joy of being ministers of reconciliation? And would you give us a vision of the joy that is set before us and, and your benediction, which will be worth all things? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.